I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us now worship the Lord our God. extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. One generation shall lord your works to another and declare your mighty act. Almighty and eternal God. Ever our Savior and Defender in Jesus Christ, you have shown yourself to be the God who is willing to defend us against all that the world could do to us or all that we in our weakness do to ourselves. In the Holy Spirit, you call us 
from our separate ways into community in order that we might care for one another and defend each other from every temptation. Now be with your community in worship as we listen for your word and respond with our hymns, prayers, praise, and our service in the defense of the dignity of all persons. We ask this in the name of the one who is our sure fortress and defense, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both everyone worshiping here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the name of the Lord. And because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, we offer our word of welcome as one that has no qualifying adjectives attached to it. Christ welcomes all, and so we welcome all in his name. We are delighted by everyone's presence here today. I ask everyone, members and guests alike, kindly to sign the friendship pad, which you should find on the inside edge of your pew. If you will sign your name and send it down the pew and back again, we will be able to greet one another by name at the conclusion of worship. I'd also like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall at the conclusion of this service. The hall is just out this door to my right and down a very short ramp. There you will find our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, we will find the opportunity to engage with one another more deeply than we can when we are simply in worship together. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention. Actually, just one thing, really. Uh, and that is the time capsule that is uh, noted in there. Karen Marston will be putting that together with the children from the celebration service. And I want to disabuse you of the notion that you must consider yourself elderly to participate in the time capsule. You just need to have a story to tell that you would like for a generation from now, 25 years from now, for this congregation to remember. There are sign-up sheets in the hallway outside the church office for that, as well as Karen Marston's email address is in the bulletin, and you may contact her directly to sign up to participate in that time capsule in celebration of our 325th anniversary. As a family of faith, it's our great privilege to share together the burdens and the joys of congregational life, and today we celebrate together with joy the birth of Oliver Martin, who is the son of Monique Canier and Billy Martin. Monique, a longtime member of our choir, not with us presently, but nonetheless, we are celebrating with Monique and Billy on the safe arrival of Oliver and surround that family with our love and prayers. And now, Andrew has a word for you. Good morning, everybody. You will see on the back side of your uh, hymn insert in the uh, bulletin there, there's a concert happening next Saturday at 5 p.m. Um, this is going to be a wonder, 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 wonderful occasion um, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, this great group behind me has put in a lot of work, and the music is fantastic. You get to participate in it. Um, there are several hymns scattered throughout the uh, program, um, all arranged by Richard Webster, who, um, for those of you who don't know, was my choir director and uh, my first boss, really, in high school, um, growing up in Evanston. And uh, I've waited a long time to be able to get him here, 
and um, he will not disappoint, and it's going to be a truly wonderful, wonderful program. And following that concert, uh, there is a reception, which is sort of the last final hurrah fundraiser for the choir tour. Um, there will be champagne and little nibbly things. There's going to be a great silent auction um, with uh, something for everyone. And um, bonus, bonus, bonus feature of this concert is if you've ever wanted to know what I was like in high school, Richard has a lot of stories. So please come on Saturday at 5 p.m. You don't want to miss it, especially those worshiping from home. This is one that you want to be in the building for, not in front of your computer. So I hope to see you all there. Bring 15 friends with you, and we're going to have a ball. Thank you. Scripture reminds us ours is not a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, because of his likeness to us, has been tested in every way as we are, only without sin. Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of our gracious God, where we may receive mercy and God's grace and find timely help. Let us join together in our common prayer of confession. Eternal God, with the tenderness of a nursing mother, you care for us. As a father has compassion on his children, so do you gather us under your wings. Great and mighty though you are, you choose to be with us and for us. You even created us in your image, giving us an identity as your beloved children and calling us to live in a different way but we have our own preferences. Given your grace, we look on others with judgment. Provided with all we need, we hoard our gifts. Created to love one another, we follow other commandments. Forgive us, we pray. Teach us again what it is to abide in your promise, for we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Let us continue our prayers privately and silently. The prophet Isaiah says, I have taken you up I have fetched you from the ends of the earth and summoned you from its farthest quarters. I have called you my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you off. Fear nothing, for I am with you. Be not afraid. I am your God. People of the good news, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our gospel lesson for this morning is taken from the gospel according to John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Here ends the first lesson. The second lesson is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, the 17th chapter. The Apostle Paul is in Asia Minor. He's moved to Greece. He's been all over the city, and then he's brought to Areopagus, excuse me, to speak to the philosophers and people gathered there. So Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. As I went through the city and looked carefully at all the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they should live, so that they should search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each of us. For as your poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being, and seemingly we too are his offspring, excuse me, since we are God's offspring. We ought not to think of the deity like gold or silver or stone 
an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. What God has overlooked in the time of human ignorance, now he commands all people to repent. Because God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by one whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this one from the dead. Here ends the second lesson. Our epistle lesson is taken from 1 Peter, the third chapter, beginning at the 13th verse and continuing through the 22nd. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water, and baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not at a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and all powers subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I am not much of a sailor myself, but my brother is. So as a result, we found ourselves on a rather long sailing trip a number of years back. Now, prior to this trip, I was more of a sunfish sailor, but after this trip, I became someone who could mark to my credit that I had sailed a 45-foot catamaran on the open ocean. It was an illuminating experience, to say the least. It's wonderful out there, but... It is exposed, and it is raw, and it is immediate. There is something about being 20 miles out to sea in a smallish sailboat that makes the old mariner's prayer mean a great deal more. Be good to me, Lord, for your sea is so wide and my boat is so small. Sometime after that, I encountered a portion of a sermon speaking, of all things, about maritime law. Eileen Linder was at Jiffy Lube waiting for her car to be serviced when she discovered to her horror that she had no reading material, and after a somewhat comical interlude where she went through the sort of literature that one encounters in the Jiffy Lube waiting room, she came to a chapter on maritime law, which she proceeded to read. Here is what she learned. There are two kinds of craft. One of them has access to great power. It can accelerate and push itself through the strongest of waves. It can change direction on command. It can even stop on demand. It has great power of its own. The other class of craft is dependent on the forces of nature. Wind, tide, and human effort in paddling or rowing or the maintenance of sails. And these two classes of craft are considered, they're known as privileged and burdened. Now get this, the powerful boats, do you think they are considered privileged vessels or burdened? They, my friends, are the burden vessels. The powerful boats that can make their way forward no matter what under their own power are the burdened vessels, burdened with the responsibility to give way to the boats without power. And the powerless vessels, the ones that are dependent on the vagaries of tide and wind and weather, they are classified as privileged vessels. To them is accorded the right of way, for if the powerful vessels are not burdened with the responsibility for giving way, the powerless vessels may not make safe harbor. Dr. Lindner continues, imagine that the powerful boats are burdened and the powerless boats are privileged. And when these two kinds of craft meet each other on the open water, the powerful are burdened and must give way 
if the powerless, if the privileged, are ever to make safe harbor. And I thought to myself, who wrote this thing? Billy Graham? Mother Teresa? I turned to the front and it said, New Jersey Department of Transportation. You know what a notable theological institute that is. Friends, what's going on, she concludes. What's going on in our land when the Department of Transportation knows that the powerful must give way if the powerless are to make safe harbor, that the powerful are considered burdened and the powerless are privileged, yet the government of the United States and the Church of Jesus Christ are having trouble with the concept. Now, I'm not going to wade into the briar patch that is the United States government this morning, but I will unapologetically assert that the Church of Jesus Christ must understand this. When Jesus gives us a commandment to love one another, he sets us aside to live God's way. We are expected to operate by different rules. I remember once when one of my mentors, Doug Oldenburg, was teaching on economic justice. Now, Doug is probably one of the best, or was probably one of the best, at raising and pressing issues of righteousness and justice in a way that enabled folks to hear what he had to say and not just to shut down at the first mention of, of money, for instance. I noticed, though, through the course of the discussion, of which I was a participant, that when we began speaking about economic justice, the stakes rose and emotions rose with them. And I suspect it's because nobody ever wants to be considered to have behaved or done something in, that would make us to appear to be unjust. We just don't want to think that about ourselves or about our, our life's choices. So what does it mean to live God's way. It is to realize that the powerful are burdened and the powerless are privileged, or at least they are in God's order and the New Jersey Department of Transportation. The Bible offers us an ongoing view, indeed an abundant view, of what it means to live God's way. And there are very clear recurring patterns if we will pay attention to them. Notably, we encounter in the pages of Scripture what biblical scholars call God's preferential option for the poor. Now, before we go any further, I want to say what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that God loves the poor more than the rich. God's love is not a pie to be divided up. There are not so, a finite number of slices, and if one gets more, you get less. That's just not how God's love works. God does not love the poor more than the rich. God loves all of humanity. God made all of humanity. God loves all of us. Rich people can suffer and experience need and, and of God's care as much as anyone. But what it does mean is that in God's economy, there is a recognition of need. God knows who needs the most, 
and God cares who needs the most. God cares about those who need the most. Because God cares about us in all of our particularity and individuality. I worry sometimes about a couple of things. Number one is that I sound like a broken record telling you that God loves you and God cares about you, but I also worry sometimes that we forget that God cares about our lives, not just in the abstract, but the very day-to-day details of our lives. God cares about us in our particularity. That is the gospel. That is, frankly, the heart of the gospel. And it has always been the gospel. It has been the gospel since God set the rainbow in the sky. Before this, God had determined that creation was so run amok that the only way to salvage it was to wipe the slate clean and to reestablish holiness. God was compelled to cleanse creation. And it is a terrifying story, even if we do tend to teach it to children with adorable murals of animals going into the ark two by two. Then, in a pivotal moment of the Bible, God makes a decision. God decides to be for humanity. The powerful chooses to be burdened. And when God makes a decision, it is not made lightly. God promises that God will forevermore be on the side of humanity. You know, the Noahic Covenant never gets quoted again in the Bible, but it is foundational for everything that follows it. To bear burdens is who God is. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann spans centuries of theology saying this, in this post-flood decree of creation, the sanctity of human life is established against every ideology and every force that would cheapen or diminish life. God deems himself violated in the violation of these persons. That's Calvin. In this decree is the ground for Karl Barth's thesis of the humanity of God. God unqualifiedly aligns himself with every human person as of utmost value to him. The ultimate value of every person is echoed in the statement of Jesus, even the hairs of your head are numbered, fear not, are you not of much more value than many sparrows. God chooses to be for us. God didn't have to. God is not incomplete without us. God is complete in God's self. We do not complete God. God chooses to be for us. That is the gospel in brief. God is for us. Now, it's important to guard against simple claims of faith being treated simplistically. It is true that God carries our burdens. 
It is true that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It is true that God knows the number of hairs on our head. And while these statements may be simple, what they entail runs deep. God chooses to be burdened for the powerless, the righteous for the unrighteous. Come back to Peter's language. That is the message of the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's the same message that Paul seeks to convey to the Greeks, that there is a God who wants to be worshipped, not with idols and sacrifices, but by seeing us freed to be the human beings that God created us to be. Peter reiterates this in his letter to the nascent church that we might embrace a way of gentleness where suffering is met with fortitude. Moreover, Peter reminds us that it is the suffering of Jesus that renders holiness to the unrighteous. In American Christianity, we tend to encounter one of two caricatures of Jesus. You may be familiar with them. They are gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and Rambo Jesus, temple cleanser. Uh, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, of course, but there is some truth to that. And when we fall off into binaries such as that, I suspect we domesticate the grace of God by seeking to tie Jesus up in our verbiage so that he looks like our prevailing ideology. And when that happens, when simple concepts of grace become simplistically rendered, the gospel gets lost. The truth is that Jesus did go to the cross for us. He did not have to. He chose to. And that is completely consistent with the God we know. The wonder of the Noahic covenant is that it is so closely tied to the creation narrative. Before we ever get to Abraham and Sarah, we know something about who God is. We know that God's righteousness is torn between God's love affair with creation that God has made and loves and God's inherent embodiment of holiness. And yet, even in the messiness of creation that God has made, God still makes it clear that there can be no casuistry of theology that can save us from an awful conundrum. God made it to be good, and it became flawed, tragically flawed, and it must be fixed. And so in terrible righteousness, God fixes what needs to be fixed, and then immediately declares it can never be thus again. Now let's bend time for just a moment and remember that the cross stands at the center of human history and its redemptive power ripples out in every direction, not merely across geography, space, and not merely across chronos, but across kairos, across Time, not time in the way we count it, but the time and way, the ways that God experiences it. Jesus is so faithful to this calling to a way of life that frees us from sin and restores us to humanity that he went to the cross. The righteous takes on the burden of sin so that the unrighteous may be privileged to make safe harbor. That ripples out across reality and being. 
God decided that things must be different. And so the powerful are burdened and the powerless are privileged. And there's something off kilter here, isn't there? But the truth is it has been off kilter from the start. God is holy, and yet God does not abandon us to our unrighteousness. That's out of whack. God's concern for the unrighteous is scandalous. But the danger we run when we declare that the gospel is scandalous, particularly if we are the ones who benefit from the scandal, is that we will declare it scandalous so often that it isn't anymore. Kind of like the boy who cried wolf. We say it often, over and over again, and we start to sound like Chicken Little. And if we say it all the time and do not do anything because of it, then the gospel isn't seen so much as scandalous as it is seen as meaningless. Something deeply simple and profound is rendered meaningless by a simplistic and frankly complacent interpretation. But when Jesus goes to the cross for us, it is a resounding declaration of difference. And yet, it is the same as God has always been. If God will declare God's very own self for us, despite the fact that we are unrighteous, that is different, and yet, it is the same as God has always been. And if we didn't think that that difference was important, well, I don't believe we could come here. Because to come into the presence of the holy while we ourselves remain in sin would be too terrifying. The risk of judgment would be too great. But we can come, just as we have always been able to come to God, because God chose that way for us. And when we come together as church, we are declaring that we are part of something different, which is why it is so vitally important that the church of Jesus Christ understands what it is to be privileged and to be burdened. Because in the church, we are all burdened and we are all privileged. We are all burdened with a message of grace that must be given away. And we are all privileged because the righteous one decided to be for humanity, for the unrighteous, that we might know God. And I will grant that that perhaps sounds like a bit of a tough message because it will not allow us to rest lightly in our own goodness. But let me ask you, do you really want to trust in your own goodness to save you? 
I am far more comforted by the notion that the one who is beyond me has become for me, that the one who is privileged took on burden for my sake and yours. Yes, the whole thing's off kilter because it's God's world and God's way and God's church, which is why we can say to all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, remember that the righteous one is waiting to welcome even us unrighteous and give us rest. The powerful chose to be burdened so that the powerless can be privileged to make safe harbors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.
As we have joined our voices in praise of God, let us also join our voices in the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of light, God of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made human, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, Lord and giver of life, which proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. What we have, we have from God. What we give, we give because of God. The morning's offering will now be received. You may bring your offerings forward during the offertory or place it in the plates after the service. You may also give online. The Lord loves a cheerful giver.
gracious and bountiful God. Giver of every good gift, you have gifted yourself to us in Jesus Christ in order that we might make a gift of ourselves to the world in your name. Accept, therefore, these gifts as tokens of our lives and use them and use us in your service. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The prophet Isaiah said once, I said I had labored in vain. I had spent my strength for nothing to no purpose. Yet in truth, my cause was with the Lord and my reward was in God's hand. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, ever our rescue and strength, from the beginning it has pleased you to call order out of chaos, to create covenant communities out of human anarchy. You have gathered us into your community, the church, where we may grow in wisdom courage, and strength. From here, you send us out into the world where we may serve with discipline, imagination, and love. Even when in our foolishness we had rebelled against your lordship, preferring rather to create our own limited alliances based on race or language or wealth, and so shattering the unity and peace of your creation you did not turn against us. Rather, in Jesus Christ, you once more renewed your bond with us by becoming one with us. Where we had rebelled, he obeyed. Where he had, we had discarded, he took up. Where we had failed, he succeeded. He carried on to victory the whole of the human cause. So even now, in Holy Spirit, you continue to labor in your creation, to gather up the discarded and the broken pieces of our common humanity in order to create new communities of love and justice. Even now, in Holy Spirit, you call us to join you and your church as your servant work, as you labor for reconciliation, for justice and peace. And before all, even now, in that same spirit, you call us to prayer. So we begin all of our labors with this work. Giver of every good gift, we remember that you alone are the source of all the energy we attempt to apply to the troubles of the world. And even so, when we can do nothing else, we are always able to pray. Even as we work for help, we pray for help. We pray for the sick. We pray for the dying. We pray for the troubled. We pray for the hungry. We pray for the abused, the vice-risen, the neglected. Even as we work for justice, we pray for justice. We pray for the poor, 
for the War Department, for the terrorized, for the victimized. And even as we pray for acceptance and inclusion, we pray for the despised, the shunned, and the rejected. Even as we work for freedom, we pray for freedom. We pray for those imprisoned by ignorance, or by their own bigotry, or by vicious ideology, or by phantoms of their own minds. We pray for those who proclaim the truth in the face of violence, for those imprisoned for their conscience sake. We pray for all who defend human freedom we pray for all who work for genuine and lasting peace. O wise and all-loving God, in Jesus Christ you have embraced the whole of our humanity and rendered us all acceptable to you for his sake. So even now, gather up and embrace our prayers, and in your wisdom, render them all acceptable to your will. In your love, Grant us all the faith, hope, and love we need each day to do your will. We ask all these things in the name of and in the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray using these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
go now burdened with the compulsion to live the grace of Jesus Christ in the measure that it has been given to you, and go as well, privileged in the knowledge that Christ has done all that we might make safe harbor. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Mm -hmm.